pastor read the gospel lesson this morning from John chapter 5, verse 1 through 14. And uh, I've been reading Lemsky's commentaries, and uh, in, in the commentaries he said some Bibles don't, don't uh, mention the part about the angel at the pool of Bethesda. And I've, I've studied out of uh, the Nelson Study Bible, and it's the New King James Version, and it does list the angel in there. It talks about the angel. And I'm going to read the gospel lesson again from, from this version. It's uh, John's Gospel, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay, lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well, and whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down in front of me. And Jesus said to him, Rise up, take your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said to him, Who is cured? Is it, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they said to him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Heavenly Father, these are your words. Your word is true. Thank you for your word. I just asked this morning that... Uh, the words of my, mouth, of my mouth be pleasing to you, and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In verse 1, it says, after, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Jesus had just come down from, the, from Cana of Galilee, where he made water into wine. And uh, just to make this relevant, I'm going to read that for you also in John 4, uh, starting with verse uh, 46. So Jesus came again to, Can to Cana of Galilee, where he had made water into wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, son. Your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. 
And then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. And this again is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of, out of Judea into Galilee. Now in John 5, verses 2 and 3, says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, and waiting for the moving of the water. Now, uh, <clears throat> there is also a town in the United States with that name, Bethesda. I don't know how many of you people have heard of that. Some of you are nodding your heads. But that's in Maryland. And uh, they have a hospital there called, and Maryland's nodding, and it's uh, called Bethesda Memorial Hospital. And uh, <clears throat> the plans for Bethesda Memorial Hospital began with a small group of community-minded area residents in the immediate post-World War II years. And they shared a dream to create a, an area hospital which would not only serve rapidly increasing health needs, but also would be a showcase for hospitals around the world. It's close to Washington, D.C., so uh, there's a lot of people there. And also, uh, the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center is there. I'm not sure if that's associated with Bethesda. I don't know that. Rod says maybe. He's nodding his head. It might be. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but anyway, it's this uh, Bethesda, Bethesda Hospital in Maryland. It's well known for specialties in heart, stroke, and cancer. And it uh, supports renovations and advancements in numerous areas, including the Bethesda Comprehensive Center for Cancer and the Bethesda Center for Women and Children. And throughout history, people have looked for places like this. And in Jerusalem, it was the pool at Bethesda. And it was also called the House of Mercy. And it's a place where people went for healing. It was well known for that. And also, it was, it was a charitable place. They built it for charitable reasons, so people would have a place to go. The five porches were like a hospital, and they were filled with a crowd of suffering people. In today's hospital, there's a system. You call for an appointment, and you wait your turn. And when a doctor calls, you go in and see the doctor. But in John's account of Bethesda, the pool, it was different. The paralyzed, the paralyzed man had been waiting a long time. We don't know how long he had been waiting there at the pool, but he, the Bible says he was suffering for 38 years. And uh, I don't know what the life expectancy was at that time, but I don't, well, I just don't know. It might have been the life expectancy, 38 years. Some people probably didn't even live 38 years. I don't know. But then we just heard this morning in Sunday school about, pastor said, 110 years for Joshua. For Joshua, he lived 110 years. So I don't know what his life expectancy was. But anyway, when asked 
Jesus asked him uh, if he would be made well. In verse 4, he explained, or verse 4 says, uh, that's, that's where the angel comes in. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. So it was healing, but it wasn't a real good system. Not, it wasn't, you had to wait a long time for a possible healing. That's what, the way it sounded. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew, this is in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had been there in that condition for a long time, and he said, do you want to be, be made well? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but when I am coming, another steps in front of me. The man's answer shows that he did not know Jesus. He wasn't praying for a miracle like we see in the hospitals when we go today. In the busy hospitals, people are praying, and they're praying for healing. But this man, he was hoping someone would help him into the water. His confidence was in the water, the stirring of the water. And this man was not hailed because of his faith in Jesus. Jesus healed him anyway. Jesus said to him, in verse 8, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And in verse 9, immediately the man was made well and he walked. John records this miracle because it was a witness to his deity. As I read in uh, chapter 4, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. So John records this miracle as a witness. Jesus himself told John the Baptist that the proof of his Messiahship was that the lame would walk. That's in Matthew 11, verses 1 through 5. And the prophet Isaiah had predicted this a long time before that. The lame shall leap like a deer. It says that in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. This man was healed in an instant. All traces of the ailment of 38 years were gone. Strength surged through his body. He picked up his bed and walked away. He didn't need therapy for his legs to train, his muscles to walk again like we do when we have knee surgery today. It takes two months of, of uh, training the muscles to, to use that knee again. You have to retrain those muscles. But this man walked immediately with no, no problem. It was a miracle. Everyone praised God and gave thanks, right? That's not what happened. Verse 9 and 10, and that was the Sabbath day. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, it is a Sabbath day. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. They had no, no excitement over the fact that he was, he was uh, healed. They were accusing him. The law of Moses taught that the Sabbath must be different from other days. On it, neither people nor animals could work. The prophet Jeremiah had prohibited carrying burdens on the working day of the Sabbath, or, or working on the Sabbath. That's in Jeremiah 17, 21 through 22. And Nehemiah made it clear that trading on the Sabbath as if it were any other day was forbidden. Over the years, the Jewish leaders had amassed thousands of rules and regulations. By Jesus' day, they had 39 different classifications for work. 
According to them, carrying furniture and giving medical treatment on the Sabbath were forbidden. Jesus didn't break the law. He violated the traditions of the Pharisees, which had grown up around the law. The Ten Commandments are reviewed in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. It talks about the Sabbath day. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is in your gates, that your servants may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now these verses contain a positive command in regard to the Sabbath as holy, separated for God's purposes. The primary significance of the Sabbath is that it belongs to the Lord. You shall do no work. Rest. On the Lord's day, the Israelites were to do no work and celebrate God's good gifts. The Israelites were to remember their past oppression and celebrate their current freedom. The Sabbath was celebrated on the seventh day of the week. We talked about this in our Saturday Bible study one morning about the Sabbath. The pastor said he has to work on the Sabbath. But <laughs> Christians generally worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, because it was on a Sunday that the Lord rose from the dead. Even so, Christians follow the principles of this command. They dedicate the time of Lord by resting and, and praising him for the blessing and remembering his saving acts, which are written in the Bible. The Pharisees used this law in an attempt to earn works righteousness. They expanded on God's law and added many Sabbath rules, governing almost all activities. Jesus' act exposed their work righteousness. It wasn't an accident that he healed on the Sabbath. He did that for a reason. That was his purpose. In verse 10, the Jews should have been praising God for the miracle of healing instead of accusing the man who was cured for working on the Sabbath. Verse 11, he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And in verse 12, then they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn into the multitude of that place. For Jesus to have withdrawn in the multitude of the crowd, multitude of the crowd, it makes me think there must have been a very large amount of people there at the pool of Bethesda. In uh, Maryland, uh, Bethesda has a population of 60,000 people and it's located on the Beltway around Washington, D.C. And that is a very high populated area, so I, I would assume there's a lot of people in that hospital where it would be very easy to get lost, to, to slip away and have no, not, someone not be able to find you. But 
But I can imagine in that day, in that time of Jesus, the multitudes of crowds that were there wanting to be healed. The Jews, they paid no attention to the wonderful sign that Jesus had worked. They didn't care about the compassion and the healing and the mercy of God. They wanted to make a case against Jesus for breaking the fabricated laws passed off as God's will. The man who was healed couldn't help, however. The miracle happened so suddenly that Jesus had disappeared into the crowd before the man could find out who he was. Nevertheless, Jesus wasn't finished with him. In verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And Jesus found the man in the temple. It was a good sign that he found him there because the man evidently had gone in there to thank God for the great mercy that he had found in the house of mercy. What did Jesus mean by a worse thing? After 38 years of suffering, the root of evil still remains, which may shoot up again. In John 4, Jesus met a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And this is another uh, thing that happened before I read. When, Jesus told, when, when she told Jesus that she had no husband, Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. So, when Jesus said to the man who was healed, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you, he already knew everything that the man had done. He was calling the man to repent. Romans 6, chapter 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And uh, Kevin read this other lesson this morning out of Romans, Romans 8. And verses 3 through 6 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak in the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And that's what, that was, uh, <clears throat> What Jesus was talking about he says when he said uh, sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit the things of the spirit and I don't know what the man's sin was or what he was guilty of but Jesus knows and the warning of Jesus was to sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. 38 years of infirmity would be bad, but eternity in hell would be worse. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And uh, last week in our adult Sunday school class, we were talking about the fear of the Lord. 
and what it means to fear God. And there were different answers, and, it, and uh, we've talked about this before, the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear God? And uh, the fact of being afraid doesn't come up very often. Most people say respect. It means respect. But you also should be afraid. You should be afraid of the consequences of sin. One, one person in our class said, uh, when she talked about uh, the fear of the Lord, the fear of our Heavenly Father, the fear of her own father, and she said, I have a, I don't fear my father, but I have a healthy respect for what he tells me to do. If he commands me to obey him, out of respect, I obey him. But I also have a fear of the consequences if I don't obey him. So I think the fear of the Lord, it, it means exactly what it says. To fear God, I mean, you have to have a healthy respect for the consequences if you don't obey those commands. In Proverbs 4, chapter 1, and, or chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it says, Hear my children the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding, for I give good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. And from this, the instruction of a father implies warmth and affection as well as a parent's concern for discipline. The call for parents to teach their children the things of God is based on Deuteronomy chapter 6, 6 and 7. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And in verse 14, Kevin read this already, and I'm not going to read all of the verses that he read, but these are all instructions of a father, and they, it's good advice, it's good, uh, good counsel, and uh, that keeps you out of trouble, think, if you follow these words. And it keeps you out of trouble in this life and in the next life. And verse 14, I'll just read uh, verse 14. Do not enter into the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. And the rest of those verses that Kevin read are also like that. They're good advice. But these are, are words from a father to pass on to his children. And our Heavenly Father also has commands for us. And we are to obey those commands. He is a loving God. But he wants, and he wants what's best for us. That's why he gives us these commands. He disciplines out, us out of love. But he is a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before me. He is a just God. The wages of sin is death. After, the man, after Jesus made the man, the man well, after 38 years of infirmity, he wasn't done with him. He commanded him to change his life. And that implies to everyone. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
And Romans 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. These, some of these commentaries, I've been getting my ideas from uh, reading Lemsky's uh, commentaries. I, I, I'm interested, that interests me just to read them. I don't write down everything I read from him because I don't agree with everything he says, but I, I look at the Bible and take most of my comments directly from the Bible. And also there's, I found another book in pastor's office. It was called The People's Commentary on John. And I've taken a few comments from that too. They were, uh, but both of, both of those commentaries uh, were in agreement on this part where Jesus says, stop sinning. And it doesn't imply that man can stop sinning successfully any more than we can gain heaven by keeping the Sabbath rules. Works righteousness. But First uh, John, I'm going to read this. I didn't write it down. But First John, chapter one, verse eight, verse eight and nine says, "If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness." So when uh, <clears throat> When Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse can happen to you, that uh, we should be spiritually minded. We should obey God's commands. And uh, in our Sunday school class this morning, the, pat, the last thing pastor said, and I told pastor, he could have just as well taught this because he had everything that I needed for this sermon. <laughs> in that Sunday school class. But his last statement was, if you turn your back on me, this is in Joshua 23, verse 16. If you turn your back on me, you can lose. What would you lose? That was his question. If you turn your back on me, what would you lose? And, uh, of course, the answer to that is eternal life. What can you lose if you turn your back on me, if you don't obey my commands? So, for that, uh, that statement... I mean, when, uh, when uh, Jesus healed that man, he did not know Jesus. But by the time he was healed, he did know Jesus. And Jesus' advice for him was to stop sinning and uh, that was, that's good advice for all of us. Sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. Our Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this day and I thank you for this lesson that you have provided for us. Thank you for the words that you have for us and most of all, thank you for Jesus. Jesus came not to this world to judge the world, but to save us. Thank you for Jesus, for all that he has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.